Welcome to another episode of the Emerging Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Felicity Fury, founder of We Aspire. We have the fabulous Brett Bassett here co-hosting with me today and a special guest. We have Luke Mathers on the call and super excited to have you here, Luke. I think it will be almost triple hosting today because you've positioned that you might ask some questions of us. So I'm excited (laughs) what you have to ask us as well. So firstly, thanks for being here. It's great to have you. Oh, it's awesome to be here. I think I'm returning the favour because I think you've been on my podcast before and you're you're wonderful. So hopefully I can be that good. Thank you. Well, I think we're going to have a great discussion today. You've got so much fantastic experience in leadership roles. I feel like your claim to fame is opened 100 Specsaver stores in 100 days. Obviously, you didn't do that on your own. That takes a huge amount. No, no, I did it all by myself. It was just me. I'm really good with a hammer. And yeah, no, that was... It was amazing. A hundred stores in a hundred days. It was the biggest retail rollout in Australia's history. And I don't think I don't think Specsavers get the credit it deserves. If you have a look at you know the likes, of, everyone talks about things like Uber and you know Netflix, what they did to Blockbuster and stuff like that. Specsavers started with nothing and had fifty percent market share within about three or four years. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a big change and completely changed an industry. Yeah, the things that they do now are amazing. And I need mean, um, to ask a question: what, Why? Why the hundred stores in a hundred days? I mean, that's such um, a big, big, bold thing to to, to get out to achieve. Yeah, it, it was. And if you've ever met Doug Perkins, who's the founder of Specsavers, he's a really visionary guy. He, he's changed the industry in you know every country they've been to. And the thing about it is that. You can't do what we do without volume. It's, it's a very much, you know, we, we run on way smaller margins than, than Optics had ever done before. And the only way you can do it is to have volume. And the only way you can get volume is to have a critical mass to be able to advertise. And so we needed the 100 stores to be able to have 100 stores paying their advertising fees to be able to get on the TV and, you know, should have gone to Specsavers and all of that sort of stuff. So we couldn't have delivered on the promises that that we needed to without having that critical mass. So he, he had a very large checkbook, which he, which he threw at a lot of people to, to get him on board at the start to get that critical mass. But without that, I think we could have taken 10 years to get where we got to in one. Amazing. They will come to, to coin a yeah. very old movie. It, it, was a really, it was a really weird sort of scenario to go around to these places because it was very much a, and Specsavers themselves are a mum and dad sort of operation as well in each individual store. But back then you would go to a store and it'd be, you know, one receptionist and, you know, the optometrist who owned it just about. And, you know, she might have been testing her eyes and doing whatever she did. And, you know, there would just be the two or three of them in the shop. And, you know, I had, at one stage I had staff of like 50. I mean, that that's not the same business. That's not, you know, that's not the same, that's not the same industry anymore. And and they did that by being really bold and and seeing the bigger picture and saying yeah we can do this and and um yeah got out and did it awesome and when you set out in your career you know I'm sure that wasn't something you expected that you would accomplish is something huge like that and now you're an author as well why leadership for you how did you go from I guess being you could say a technical professional which a lot of people in our community are. And then going into those leadership roles, what drove you into that leadership and, and why? I, I don't think there was, I think you got dumped in that leadership role in, mo, in most cases. I went to a place called Bunbury and Bunbury's, it's not the arse end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's not the greatest, it wasn't then, it's actually quite, quite a really 
quite a cool place now. But back then, back in the early 90s, it was pretty dodgy. And they couldn't get optometrists to go there. So they, they dangled a big check in front of me and said, here's a carrot. Will you please go there? And went there. And I'd worked in optometry businesses before. I'd worked in pubs. I kind of saw how good businesses were run. And when I got there, I realized that the person running this one didn't have a clue, didn't care, and was more than happy for someone else to take over. So at 21 years old, I kind of said, well, no one else is doing this. Let's do it properly and let's change things. Let's put some systems in that work a bit better. And and the business just went boom straight away. It's 21 years old. I'm kind of you know speaking to 40-year-olds and coming up with better ways to do it. Just got really curious then and read things like, you know, Severed Habits of Highly Effective People and The One Minute Manager and read all of those really old school books. And pe- people your age, Felicity, without saying the ages and stuff, they're great books to go back and read. You know, I have um, The One Minute Manager is a tiny, the tiniest little book. You know, you can, you'd read it in a flight, you know, it's, a, it's an hour and it's really patronising in really simple language. <laughs> But there's something about the things in that, the, the one-minute reprimand and the, and the one-minute praising and all of this stuff that he did. And, you know, we can write reams and reams of business plans all we like, but if you can't put it on, a, on one page, you haven't actually got it clear in your head what you want it to be. And, you know, those sorts of books, they're still – and they were old when I read them. I mean, they were old books then. Even things like, you know, How to Win Habits and Influence People, you know, that's nearly a 100-year-old book. But there are still chestnuts in those things that are just part of you know how humans function, and I, I think I think everyone should should read read the modern books and go back and read some of those really old ones. Have you read any of those, Brett? Or have you read any of them as well, Felicity? Yeah, look, I have, Luke. I've read all the ones you're talking about. I religiously use start with the end in mind as part of the seven yeah. habits. You know, I always start with that. I'm a big believer in. If I look to a book that I'm currently that I've just currently finished reading, that I've there you go, perfect. Yeah, I've, I've read a, a book called Legacy, which is about the All Blacks and why they became such a successful sporting group. And it wasn't the, the, the conversation in the book wasn't about the sport per se; it was about the leadership piece. So they're two books that that I literally utilise on a daily basis in respect of what I do. So yeah, absolutely, listening. Yes, I've read Seven Habits, love it. I've read it multiple times, actually. Haven't read The One Minute Manager or Legacy, so I'm adding those to my list. And it's actually one thing that we recommend to emerging leaders who come into our programs is we say, uh, you know, while we're not here, here are some books to read. And one of my other favourites, which is also pretty old school, is The Magic of Thinking Big. And it can be a bit tricky because it's dude and it's a bit yeah there's some you know gender stereotypes in there but you just got to see beyond those things and i think when you can there's so much absolute gold and i think i've read that book a dozen times it's recommended from one of my mentors and is a go-to and actually harvard i think recommends it as one of their full books to read as a before you start in harvard which is pretty amazing the good thing about that is i look back at this a few times being someone who's mentored a lot of people to become business owners and stuff like that myself I would have loved to have had that back then. I really would have had, loved to have had someone to show me how to do some of this stuff. And I didn't, just didn't, didn't have it. They, they, they just weren't available. And so books became my mentor and they still are. They're still my greatest source of joy. They're still my greatest source of information. And if I want to change, you know, books are where I go to. It's quite ironic. Um, as someone who's an optometrist, I've actually got 
problem with one of my eyes. I get double vision if I look to my right. And so I couldn't actually read until about grade nine. You know, my parents thought I was dumb as a box of hammocks when I was a kid, but just because I'd get double vision and the words would swim around on the page. And it's a really weird now that I'm, I'm now an author and, you know, would read 50 or 60 books a year and all of that sort of stuff. And it's, it's quite ironic that I couldn't actually read until about grade nine. Wow, there you go. What led you to the books? Was it because you knew there was something missing that you wanted to improve? And I think, you know, today we have things like, of course, YouTube, where you can actually watch your role models and you can admire mentors from afar. But, you know, uh, when you were starting out, that that wasn't around. So did you have a question around, I need to improve myself or do better or what led to the books? It was definitely around doing better. And I look back now and it was definitely around trying to prove myself that I was good enough. And it's always nice. I love the concept of everyone's got a shadow. Everyone's got a little dark side of them. And I have, I have little Luke who sits over my left shoulder and, and little Luke's the little pigeon toed kid from Narang that couldn't read until grade nine. And everyone's got that little shadow, that little small version of Felicity and that, you know, little boyhood Brett that's still there. Everyone's got one of those. And sometimes. Sometimes we try and we try and hide that and we try and not let it come out, but it's going to sit in the in the background. I actually really like letting little Luke. I hear what he says, but he doesn't get a vote in what I do anymore. And I think that was that was a really good thing. But most of the thing, most of the reasons why I worked so hard and, and did really well in all the places I went was was just trying to prove I had worth. Just trying to prove the pigeon-toed little kid from Narang is going to be okay when when he gets good enough. That's okay. It, was good, but I don't think you have to go through that battle. It's funny, isn't it, Luke, as you were talking about that, I mean, I, I my first job out of uni, long story short, is I, I failed uni and got kicked out six months before I was due to graduate. I ended up joining the coppers, was in the coppers for eight years, and I, had, I was never any good as a cop. I just didn't have the right mentality. And it wasn't until I left the police and I actually started to think about what I wanted to do that I had that I need to be better than what I was, always hanging over the top of me, always hanging over the top of me. And it's funny that you talk about that little loop or that little bread or that little felicity because I use that on a daily basis as well. And one of the podcasts that we spoke about before is the reflection piece. I reflect every single week on a Friday between three and four and say, what could I have done better? What did I do well, et cetera? And that's the way that I sort of keep that little bread in check, if that makes sense. And I think it's good to recognise that we all have, you know, that person sitting there that, that's going to challenge us on an ongoing basis. There's a, there's a cool little picture that I love putting up in in talks and stuff when when we do them. And we've all got that sort of angel and devil on our shoulders. We've all got a a little devil, you know, a little devil Homer on one side and a little angel Homer on the other one. And one of the hassles with those with those two is they both sound the same. They both they both have the same you know the the narrator in your head. Both the devil and the angel both sound the same. So it's really hard to differentiate it as to which one's talking. And I think it's it's cool to be able to understand the the patterns of dialogue that you're in a lot in in a voice has when it's helping and and the same and the different patterns it has when it's not, and I love that sort of alter ego idea. I have a I have an alter ego called Carlos who Felicity knows really well, and and Carlos is like the best version of me. When I turn up as my best, Carlos turns up, and I'm really clear about what he's like. He's curious, creative, and generous. They're the they're the they're the sort of characteristics of the best version of me. And when I'm not being that, when you're really clear on what that is, it's really clear. It's really easy to show when that's not turning up. And I think from a leadership perspective, you've got to know what the best version of you is if that best version of you is going to show up every time. Because I think 
we've all had one of those bosses where we never quite knew which one was going to walk through the door every day. And that is just toxic to any sort of culture. If you're going to be a leader, you've got to be able to turn up consistently. And I remember days when I you know, might have been unwell or probably hung over or tired or whatever. And and in the huddle that I my team before we started the day, it would be, I'm probably not going to be the best version of myself today. Sorry, I'm going to try really hard, but you know, I'm apologizing for it right from the start. And when you do stuff like that, you really you show them that the best version of me is what I'm aiming for each time. And if I'm falling short, um, I'm going to admit it. And I hope I hope you can sort of help me and I'll help you on the days when when you're the same. That authenticity is so powerful and I think it's being talked about more. I was just at an event last night for women in infrastructure and the person who spoke, uh, she's head of HR at Port of Brisbane, uh, Stephanie Sinclair, and she was talking about how she was authentically being herself at work and really proudly doing that. And I thought that was so impressive and it is being spoken about a lot more, I think, compared to say even five, ten years ago. And if you are an emerging leader or you're wanting to develop yourself as a leader, Luke, what would you recommend people go after? Is it the authenticity? Are there other attributes? Should they, if they're not someone who is naturally authentic, should they go try and do that? Or what other strategies do you think they should try? Naturally authentic. It's it's a weird one. I think you're kind of authentically, well, if yeah. <laughs> I think, and that can be a barrier, I think, towards people's leadership. Is that you know, it maybe it's- yeah, it can be. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things I think I think people can smell in in when you're being inauthentic. It, it's really when you when you're faking it and all of that sort of stuff. People can smell that. They might not be able to know exactly what it is, and they might not be able to put into words what the problem is. But people can tell when when you're sort of you know not being yourself. And I, I think being honest, you know, being honest with that shadow, being honest honest with your your sort of bad parts are and working on those and to be able to sort of go with your strengths and be able to get i love the idea that we all need to have someone that fills our gaps i the entire time i ran businesses i had the same manager and she was wonderful she was she's an i dotter and a t crosser i'm not i'm i'm very much a ready fire aim person but she would go she she loved a good spreadsheet she loved a good timetable all of that sort of stuff that i'm just terrible at but she realized that I motivated people really well and I got people moving and I got things done. And I had a terrible attention to detail, but she was amazing at that. I really appreciated the fact that she was good at that. She really appreciated what I brought to the table and together we were an amazing team. There's a, there's a really cool personality profiles I've got a little bit of an issue with, but there's a, a thing called 41Q, which is based a bit on Myers-Briggs and it does your sort of personality profile. And they're all A and B questions. And she and she did the 41 questions and answered them all the opposite of what she thought she should have answered them. And she actually got my personality profile. <laughs> so every single one of the questions, she did the complete opposite. But her and I were the best team I could ever have hoped for. And there's all of the success I had. And, you know, we had the number one store in the country and, you know, we broke global records and all of this sort of stuff. And no way could I have done that without her. And no way could either of us done it without that appreciation of what the other person brings to the table. And I think that's what great leaders do. They don't have to be everything to everyone, but they do have to make sure that they can, they can fill their gaps with other people that have the skills that they don't. Totally agree. Brett, what are your thoughts on this? Struggling. I'm struggling. Authentic, authentically, I'm struggling with my, my you. Look, I absolutely agree with everything that Luke said. I, I'm 
I've got a saying, I'm, I'm never the smartest person around the table, and that's not me being patronising, that's me being absolutely blunt. I'm a failure, and yet I'm still, I've been a CEO for seven, eight years now, right? And I think what Luke said about bringing the right people around with you, filling the gaps, I am not a, I am not a detailed person at all. I hate reviewing and settling things. And that's one of the things I have to do on a regular basis is actually sign stuff, you know, to make decisions for my organisation. I really, really struggle with it. And so what I do is I make sure I do it first thing in the morning when I'm really hooked into, you know, my brain is where it needs to be. And then I spend the afternoon doing the walk, the walk, talking to people and all that type of stuff. But I think where I've had the most success is where I've got people around me that are not afraid to say that's the wrong choice or that's the wrong view or to challenge my thinking. And I think that's I really like people who challenge my thinking because it's that sometimes I can be like a, a quick fire, similar to what Luke was talking about. And sometimes I need people to slow me right down. So I couldn't agree more with what Luke is saying. And, and I think sometimes what I've seen in my leadership journey is where leaders have not wanted to get people around the table that are better than them at certain things, those leaders just aren't anywhere near as successful as other leaders are. Totally agree. And certainly experienced that myself in my business relationships is finding people who are the opposite has been so effective. When I first did it, it drove me absolutely nuts because I was so frustrated that this person was so different. And I didn't even realize that that would be helpful until we started working together and, you know, we had success in the organization and, and grew it really effectively. And then I realized, oh, okay, this is awesome. I'm learning so much. And I, you know, it's my first kind of leadership thing in my early 20s. So I had no idea what I was doing. And I feel like I got a lucky break having someone who had those opposite skills to me. And we recently did one with our core team at We Aspire. The disc profile thing came up and we literally have a D, I, S and a C in a team. So <laughs> nailing it for the four of us, which is great. Um, Luke, what do you think most people would disagree with you about leadership? About leadership? Probably the biggest one. I think that I think the biggest skill a leader needs is to actually be good at stress. Um, I think that's the number one skill. You can have all the different styles. You can be a D, you can be a high I, you can be whatever you like. Anyone can lead, but no one can lead unless they're good at stress. And I think that I think the biggest thing you've got to do is be able to lead yourself first. That's probably my number one thing. Everyone thinks about how, how am I going to tell other people what to do and how am I going to direct other people because I'm a leader now. I think you've got to look inside first. I think you've got to make sure you're clear about what you want to do, where you want to go, how you want to turn up. And I think we talk about leadership, about what, the effect we have on other people, but I think we've got to really lead ourselves before we can lead anyone else. 100%. You go, you go Brett. Oh, sorry, Felicity. Look, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I'm a big believer that a phrase I often use with my team is we want leaders who want to, who want to run into the fire, not away from the fire. And, and it's and it's that stress piece, right? And so I absolutely agree. And, and I've been, there have been times when I've been absolutely no good at stress and it has come down and I've made really bad decisions. What does that look like for you, Brett? What is that, what is not being good at stress? What what sort of decisions do you make? What sort of, even what sort of feelings do you get in your body and your brain and your thought processes on those times when you feel like you're not good at stress? What does that look like? I get, a, I get an, an anger inside of me i mean i classic example and i've spoken about the podcast before i remember once early in my leadership career i was in a senior role but not not the ceo i slammed my desk down in front of my staff and screamed at 
Now, that was a clear... <laughs> Boys out of the pram. <laughs> I did. I did. It's because I was frustrated, right? And I've said this to Felicity before on the podcast. And as a result of that, guy that I had to make redundant some weeks later gave me one of the best slaps across the face on the way out I've ever had. And he said to me, and I'll paraphrase here, he said, the best boss I've ever had was actually somebody that could control themselves. And I didn't realise at the time he was saying, you are not the best boss I've had, you're crap. So that's the manifestation piece. So, And I, I know if I then flip to what it looked like when it's good, when I've got good control of stress for me in, in a high-stress situation, I actually slow everything down. I actually I think before I speak. I actually feel almost like a level of strength and fortitude in my body. I actually feel myself standing up almost taller and upright, if that makes sense. And so that's how it manifests for me. But when I'm really, I mean, and even when I started in this job, in my new job, the first, the job I had prior was really, really stressful. One of the ways that it used to manifest for me, and I didn't realise until I came into the new job, I'd turn up unchanging at work. It just looked a little bit unkempt because I I wasn't focused on how I looked. And so I walked into the new job and one of the first things I said to my head of HR is I said, I want you to know, I said, if I start to get stressed, I said, if I start to turn up to work unshaven, not looking kept, I said, you need to tell me because that's going to be an indicator that I'm stressed. So there's some examples for me. It's nice. To, what about you? What, you what, how would you know if you're sort of – if you're a bit under the pump and you're not turning up as the best version of yourself because you haven't had that self-management, what does that look like for you? It's a tricky question to answer right at this point in my life with a six-month-old baby and a, <laughs> and a three-year-old and a new business and uh, exactly all the things. The juggling queen. <laughs> So, yeah, recently we went to the UK and I feel like I didn't experience jet lag because that was just how I felt all the time. That's um, my default. <laughs> there's definitely some habits to me. I feel like if I'm really craving a packet of like salty, fatty crisps, then I know, oh, okay, my food, my food's slipping out. So I know that's like a really random, weird indicator. I stop reading and then I stop putting good stuff into my brain and taking care of myself. So I think the feeling is probably more anxious and I can't think clearly. And so often for me, I need to go out and be in nature. Lucky we live with a beautiful park behind us so I can have a quick look out the window. But yeah, it's a real like anxious, like I'm not going to get it right. Nothing's going to work out. And I can't, I really know I can't be creative or can't really it's like my processing of my brain is not working and and not kind of connecting things together. But I feel like it's quite, it's not a, a tricky one because I'm not stressed right now, but I notice that with sleep deprivation and, you know, not eating as well as I could, not doing my usual exercise, I'm a big one on exercise, maintain my stress, not drinking lots of coffee, these kind of all go out the window with a small child. So I'm taking it day by day at the moment. Any tips to be welcomed, Luke? Because I know you're an expert in this space. Yeah, it's, I love being able to sort of use stress as a good thing. My whole thing is that we all need stress. We all need it. Without it, life is dull, colourless and boring. You know, we need stress to fire us up. We need stress to get stuff done. We need stress to find enjoyment. Nothing, nothing worth doing doesn't have a bit of stress to it. So that, that whole... You know, I talk about in, in my latest book, Curious Habits, the star of the show is a thing called a sea squirt, which is a little thing that sits in the ocean. It's about an inch long. And it goes towards the good good parts of the ocean where there's nice food and clean water and it goes away from the bad parts of the ocean. It then 
attaches itself to the ground and does decides I've found a good spot. This is where I'm going to stay and I'm going to eat my own brain. <laughs> it doesn't want to move anymore. So it stays exactly where, where we are. And I think some of us, and particularly, I had actually told that story at a, a workshop I did for the Gold Coast City Council. And uh, one of the leaders said, yes, we've got whole departments of sea squirts. They've been here for years. But I think we've all got to understand what our body's telling us. It's something I, I do a bit of work in schools as well. And one of the things I've noticed when we're talking in schools is when you talk to kids and you ask them, what are the, the signposts your body gives you when you're feeling stress? What does that feel like? And we have a, a process we call catch, wait and reset. It's kind of a sort of three-step process with catch, wait and reset. And it's to catch the physical sign that you're feeling stressed. All right. Yours might be, I'm going to eat chips and I'm not going to exercise. And in the moment one, my, mine is I get knots in my stomach. Brett probably starts beating on people and yelling up and, or used to when you are. Yeah, used to. All right. But I think we've all got to be able to catch what that physical sign is. And like you said before, Brett, put that gap between the, the stressor and the response. You know, lots and lots. Like Victor Frankl's probably the most fa famous for saying it. Between stimulus and response, there's a gap. And in that gap's your ability to choose what you're going to do now. The hassle is that the part of our brain that controls our stress response gives us the first shitty draft at what to do, all right? And that drafts, if, if you're running away from tigers, that draft's awesome. Fill your boots, fight, flight, go for your life. Most of the time, that's not the best response. So the weight part of it stands for what am I thinking, all right? And when you do that, when you talk to yourself, you put your, your sort of prefrontal cortex, your, your new brain back on top of that limbic brain, and then you make good decisions. And then the resets like with your computer. If your computer's overloaded, we go control, alt, delete. What can I control? And waste no time worrying about the stuff you can't. What are my alternatives? And what do I need to get rid of? All right. And quite often we need to get rid of, you know, excuses. We need to get rid of blame. We need to get rid of a lot of stuff. But Nothing changes unless we stop and have a look and see what our alternatives are. And once we do that, what we're doing is you're saying before that when you get really stressed, you can't think right, you can't be creative. We need our brain together. We need our, our old brain and our new brain together to do that. And when we're really stressed, our, we go into sort of preservation mode. And when we're flight and fight and we're in preservation mode, we become defensive and we become dumb. All right. So the part of our brain that can actually fix the problems goes missing. So we can't fix really difficult problems when our biology is out of whack. So the first thing you've got to be able to do is get your biology back, then you get your emotions back, and then all of a sudden your thoughts and your, and your brain gets back together, and then you can think clearly and have options of where you go. So I think that self-awareness of understanding where my biology is going, what's happening in my brain and my body, and use those things as signals to get curious rather than sort of triggers for anxiety and stuff like that, which is, I think, the way a lot of people do it at the moment. Yeah, totally. I, do I, get, I get hot sometimes as well, and it's really strange. I know where I've been the most stressed. One way that I've dealt with it is it's, it's not that fight or flight mix. It's going to sound really dumb. I've literally just stood and stood in a corner and just thought for like 30 seconds to a minute. And I remember I did it one time in my old job, 13 people sitting in the room around my table waiting for me. And I thought, you know what, I don't care. I just need some time to just calm down here. And then what I was able to do, which is exactly what you're saying, Luke, I was able to be present when I turned around and say, right, what do we need to do now? And it's a really hard thing to do. It's, you've got to be really, you've got to be okay with actually looking a bit stupid, I find sometimes worked you know and, and i think it's a really good a really good habit to be able to think about is to 
identify and stop straight away. Catch, wait and reset has been amazing. I wrote the second book I wrote, we lost a friend of my daughter's to suicide, which was just awful. And and one of her other friends was really struggling with it. And we wrote a book together called Reset. You can actually download it for free at my website at lukemathers.com.au. You can actually download this book for free. It's a tiny little book, take about an hour or so to read. And I love all you know this talking about prefrontal cortex and neurobiology and biochemistry and all of this. I love all of that sort of stuff. But writing that for with a teenager for teenagers, with a teenager who just lost her best friend to suicide, you know what I mean? She was in all sorts of trouble and we just sort of used that as a bit of a catharsis for her to sort of help her get through it. And she has and she's great now and, you know, she's wonderful. And that book's been, been just amazing. The response we've got from everyone that's read it's been fantastic. And that's that's what she did. She helped me get simpler. And I I got rid of some of the biology and just turned it into catch, wait and reset. And catch, wait and reset I would use every single day. And the fact that, Brett, I love the way you okay, I don't give a shit what people, there's 13 people in the room, but I don't care less. I'm going to go, I've just got this image of you standing in the corner, just looking in there. And it's it was quite, very special. Hilarious. Very special. Yeah. Yeah. This, this guy's a little bit weird, but he can't, but when you turn back, all of a sudden you put your brain back together, the smart part of your brain's back on board and you can do the things that you need to do then. You can't do that when you're in what I call an old brain shitstorm. When you're in an old brain shitstorm and all you're doing is fight, fight and freeze, all right, you can't you can't solve problems. You know the the Einstein thing, the Einsteinian sort of quote that you know we can't solve solve problems with the same thinking that caused the problems. We've got to be able to sort of get our biology back before we can do any of that stuff. And I think that's probably the biggest thing a great leader will know how to do. And it's it's interesting. I love the fact that you guys are Afro and I am as well from different generations. And one of the issues that my generation puts out a lot is that you guys aren't resilient enough felicity you know, i'd love you to push back on this they did adam fraser a friend of mine he did some really good research on resilience and they posed the question are we more or less resilient now than we were a generation or two ago and my instant response is no people in the generation before me were more resilient we're probably more resilient than than people your age felicity that was my take on it and the research says I was completely wrong, that we're just as resilient as we always have been. The problem that we have now is that we don't have a resilience problem, we have a recovery problem. People are just constantly being stimulated, constantly got these little drips of dopamine coming in, constantly being, being stimulated, and we're not letting our parasympathetic and our calm and disarm and our rest and digest part of our, our bodies work. And that's why people are getting burnout and overwhelm and really struggling with stress. So I think going back to your leadership stuff, I think the biggest key for leaders and particularly your younger generation of leaders is that they've got to, they've got to reset deliberately and be able to rest really well. And that's kind of what I do with most of my work now. I sort of go around, go around to businesses and companies and help them sort of work out how to do that and do that in a way that's effective so that they're really enjoying their life outside of work and they're transitioning from work to home really well, but then they're on completely when they're at work. And I, I think I think your generation's got this sussed in a way, Felicity. I love the way it's not it's not work and home. It's kind of together, but we've got to work out a way to be able to have it together, but then being able to be completely present in whatever we're doing at the time. I'd love your take on that as 
Yeah, I've heard that through the different generations where previously it was there was my work on one side and then life on the other side. And then it became work-life balance, which was, I think, you know, generation above millennials. And then the work-life balance is the greatest load of bullshit you're ever going to hear in your life. You're never going to have it. You'll you'll wander in and out of it, but it's never going to stay there. That's it. So now the the wording I've heard used is work-life integration. But I've recently read the third space and it said we're not working uh, from home we're living from work and I had such a good laugh at that because I do live at work I mean I'm home right now recording this session and it does work for me and my family with me and my husband both working from home but I find I really need to set those boundaries in place because it'll just blur and, you know, it's like, oh, 8 p.m. at night, the kids are asleep, great, I'm just going to crack into an hour of work. Is that productive? Is it actually going to help? Probably not. So there's the third space I found the concept of having a little pause between different activities really powerful and I often find something simple like putting your hand on a doorknob or walking through a doorway, just like micro moments, particularly when we're busy with kids and family. And even the other day, I noticed my husband was feeling a bit stressed or, you know, going on. And we're at the front of our, at our front door with our two kids and said, all right, family, we're all going to take three deep breaths and reset our nervous system. And so we did. And we're closing our eyes and our three-year-old's looking at us. What are we doing? But even being around him and integrating that, I think, is is really important um, when we've got such blur between work, home and everything. And I would push back on your thing about resilience, Luke, because I feel like I think it's a case by case basis. And there are a lot of young people who are really resilient. And there are a lot of young people that, and I think it comes down to, like you said, the tools for recovery to be able to prepare yourself and how I think about my mental health, because it's something I've had challenges with around anxiety and depression is, is, um, is actually having that muscle and that capability there. So when things do happen, you've got that you know, flex, like that cushion to land on because you've been building it and growing it and developing it. So what are you going to say, Luke? Yeah, the, the point Adam Fraser with his research was making was that the millennials and Gen Z, all of those guys are just as resilient as, you know, someone that fought in World War Two. Mm. all right? The hassle is they've got so much more information coming at them all the time. You can have the same degree of resilience, but it's really hard to actually function well when you don't actually have any time, any any downtime. And there's a great quote by Schopenhauer, which is like back in the 1850s, and this guy was the most miserable old bastard Germany's ever produced, and it's produced a few miserable old bastards over the journey. And Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer's quote that really stuck with me is that, that humans swing on a pendulum between pain and boredom. We swing on a pendulum between working our butts off and running like crazy and being able to chill out and relaxing. So I'm bored now. I'm running around with my hair on fire. I'm bored. I'm running out with my hair on fire. And that's the way we've sort of worked forever. And it's almost the way our biology is designed to do. We're going to run and we're going to hunt and do all of that. And then we're going to sit by the fire and chill out all night. And what's happening now is we're swinging between running around with our hair on fire and back to being just busy and then going with our hair on fire again. We're not swinging to the boredom end and we've got to be able to put our devices down. We've got to be able to walk in nature. We've got to be able to do things that, that are just lovely things to do to let our brains sort of rest and digest and to just actually calm down and, 
And, and when we can do that and when we can rest and when we can recover well, that resilience will come to the fore and we'll be able to handle whatever comes our way because we've got room in our sort of, I talk about having a stress bucket. And then when our stress bucket's full, we become defensive and dumb. So we've got to make sure we've got room in that bucket. And we can only do that with things like self-care and not running ourselves ragged the whole time and all of that sort of stuff. And as a leader now, this stuff, it, you know, they've legislated this stuff now, you know, that psychosocial safety stuff. You know, you have to be able to do that. And there's sort of three parts to that psychosocial safety stuff. It's duration, impact, and intensity. And if you've always got really high impact, really high intensity, and it's all the time, you're not getting any break, then you're not really creating an environment that that's safe for your employees. So it's actually something that's legislated against now. So I think it's okay to run around with your hair on fire and we've got this conference coming up and it's going to be really busy and we've got to do that, but we've got to rest on purpose as well. And I think that's the part we're missing. We're not doing the resting on purpose very well. And I think if we can do that better, and particularly as leaders, we can turn up as the best version of ourselves. But when our bucket's full, we can't. 100%. I recently read an article from HR talking about work 85%. So you've got that 15% to, to have a break. And I know I sent that article to you, Brett. And surprisingly, having kids has actually helped in a way. So just stop and be present. And I've really loved that while it has been, fills up every moment of our time. It went for a bushwalk on the weekend for two hours around Noosa. And it was just extraordinary just to go, we just need to get out and let's get the kids involved as well. Let's just talk for a couple of hours rather than being, you know, at home trying to get work done on a weekend, juggling everything. Uh, we, I find I crave that time. And, yeah, having kids has just been such a beautiful way as well to be present and just, you know, get excited about a stick on the ground because my son loves random things like that. <laughs> Brett, what's what's your take on this one? So, look, I absolutely agree. I've got a – I'm quite regimented despite how I can be a little bit loony at times. First thing I do when I get home, is I get out of my work clothes and put my pyjamas on. Now, my pyjamas might be a pair of shorts or, uh, you know, some in winter some tracky dacks, right? But I do it religiously because it's that separation piece. Second thing I do, and, and my wife it took me a long period of time to get on this, and she was on me, and I say that respectfully, for a long time. I now don't touch a mobile phone in bed. I take, so my mobile phone, I don't touch. The moment I... Where is your phone, bro? It's, well, it's when you go to bed. So it's over on the left hand side. So I've got to get up to turn it off in the morning so I can get up and go for a run or something. So it's yep. it's not not within touching distance. I even take off my smartwatch so that when I get up in the middle of the night, I actually don't look at the, the time. And it's amazing. I'm sleeping so much better than I ever have. And, and it's that dopamine piece. I don't have to worry about the dopamine now. So that's another thing I do. And, and I'm also really quite deliberate. When I'm at home and I'm with my son or my wife, I tend not to work. I just, I'm in a lucky situation now that I've set that as the boundary at home and I couldn't in my previous job. But, but, you know, I also, I make an absolute decision to not miss anything at home, you know, and, and I've just made that decision. And if people don't like that, then that's their issue, not mine. So that's how I, how I deal with it. So good. This has been amazing, Luke. I'm now processing, reorganizing my day. I'm putting my phone away. I'm very bad with my phone. I'm very close to me. Phones are, <laughs> phones are a really easy one. One of the things I talk about in Curious Habits is, is to have a noise-cancelling habit, all right? And I have noise-cancelling headphones on. There's work going on next door. I can't hear any of it. We're all good. All right. And there's little habits you can do once which will get rid of a whole bunch of noise. 
in your life. One really, really simple one is get really strategic about where your phone charger is. I'm in my office here and my garage is just there and the rest of my house is that way. When I come into the house, I put my phone in in the office and as I walk through that door, you talked about walking through doors and there your little segues in, and your third space going into somewhere else. I don't take my phone into my house, all right? So if I'm watching TV, I'm going to be watching TV. 80% of people look at two screens at one time, all right? and wonder why we're not getting any downtime. If I'm watching that, I, I want to watch something that's on there. I want to be a husband. I want to be a father. I just want to be present when I go in there. If I've got my phone next to me, I won't. And we know we get distracted. Even if we put it face down, if it's there, we're going to be distracted and we're not going to be as smart and we're not going to be as present. So a noise-cancelling habit is to put your phone somewhere that's even your your thing Brett saying it's it's out of reach and I have to get up to turn my alarm off. Yeah, that, that's better than having it right next to your thing, but it would be even better if it was in another room. Yeah, um, a lot of people I hear would say, and it's, it's interesting because you were talking about leaving your phone in the, in your office. It's almost mm-hmm. like when you go inside, you're with your family, you're present there. But would I be right in saying that when you go back into your office, you're actually fully present because you know that you're going to check on your phone or something? Is that how you do it? So it's almost like... yeah. Different spaces, different functions. Very much, very much, and and there's some really good, really good work around that. There's a, a book up there by by Todd Herman called The Alter Ego Effect, and I love alter egos. I love being really curious about how we talk to ourselves, and alter egos are a way of doing that. And one of the things he does, and and Adam Fraser talks about it in the third space as well, is to have those routines and rituals that say I'm going from this part of my life into that part of my life now, and phones are. Phones sort of have osmosis into your life. They creep into every little part. I, I was in Sydney running some workshops last week and was catching the train every day. And I, I live on the Gold Coast. We don't take public transport on the Gold Coast. But looked around and every single person was on their phone the entire time. Every single person. There wasn't one. I was the only person that wasn't on my phone. And I've almost felt like a Martian. It, it was really, really strange. So they, they, they have this tendency to sort of take over our lives and even going for a walk around Noosa with your kids and all of that sort of stuff. I think it's a great idea to just leave your phone at home. I've actually, I've actually dug out my wallet again. I never used to carry a wallet and now I just grab a credit card when I go out and instead of using my phone to pay. And if we go out for dinner, both my wife and I leave our phones at home and those sorts of things, which just, they feel freaky and, but it's amazing. Once you get used to it, it just becomes your new normal because it's. Isn't that crazy that that seems weird? Like that, that seems, you know, my recent holiday to the UK, I left my laptop at home and thought, oh gosh, I haven't done that for a long time. But wow, that's crazy that I'm worried about needing a laptop. There was one very tiny instance we did need it and we borrowed someone and it was completely fine for a visa visa situation. But I think we're so, it's like we're responding to others when we've got our phone and we're not curating our own life. And like you said, like leading your own life, you're not leading yourself first. You're being driven. I think when you've got your phone, it's that, oh, pressure of, oh, what if I don't get back to someone? They'll work it out. It'll be fine. The world's not going to end. I mean, I'm not a doctor saving lives, so it's not that important that I answer my phone Mm. all the time. But there's such, I think, it's almost like a social norm now these days that you have to have It is. And I I think it goes back to the we talked about right at the start that wherever you are in your leadership journey, being able to lead yourself and being curious about what are the things that I'm doing that are serving me and what are the things that I'm doing that aren't and get curious and try new things and see and take notice of what I got out of it and those sorts of things. I think if we can do that, 
and get curious about what we do, what are our triggers to do things, turn them into cues to get curious. And if we can do that, we can make sure that we do lead ourselves well, and then we're going to turn up a bit more authentic. We're going to be a bit more present. And when we do that, we can actually lead in a way that that's going to be great. Whereas if we're leading just to see how I can tell other people to do things and stuff, and I'm not walking the walk and things, I think your leadership isn't nowhere near as effective. So as anyone who wants to be a leader and aspires to that, I think the first first place to start is get curious about yourself and and work out how you can how you can turn up as the best version of you as regularly as you can. Amazing. I feel like you've rounded out the discussion so well with those final thoughts, Luke. Brett, what are your key takeaways from today? I feel like we've unpacked a lot. I'm actually going to try really hard. Well, I'm not going to try, I'm going to do. I'm going to put my phone in the office and I'm going to leave it there when I get home in the afternoon. That's what I'm going to do. Really simple. Just go there, move the move your charger. Yeah. Once the charger's moved, that, that's going to be your cue to say, this is where I leave my phone now. I, I love really that. easy. Do really it once and it's done forever. I'm taking that on too. I'm moving my charger. And Brett, I think we can report back on our next podcast how we're going. So many amazing tips, Luke, from you know how you started your journey, reading books, highly recommend that as well. It's been a game changer for me and my leadership. So many amazing lessons um, that you shared. I'm going to go back and, and have a listen to all the books that you've recommended. And we're so grateful that you had the, the time to join us today and share your amazing words of wisdom. We are very, very grateful. So thank you very much for being here. Always loving getting a chance to talk to you, Felicity. Nice to meet you too, Brett. Good, Luke. Loved it.